Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from a cantata, BWV 54, Widerstehe doch der Sünde. Stand firm against all sinning, or its poison will possess you. Alex in German, this noun, poison, is gift. Any German student will know who's uh, English-speaking, this funny uh, false friend. (laughs) Gift does not mean gift. (laughs) It means poison. That's right. And in our visit to Germany, I remember that we had little presents that we would give our homestay families. And we were told very clearly not to call oh, these gifts. <laughs> I, don't rem- I don't remember that, but that I, makes yeah. sense. In the tour meeting, I rem- it, that's what we were told. <laughs> so don't call these <laughs> gifts. <laughs> So a a pretty young J.S. Bach is kind of trying to scare us here with the music, the musical description of this text. This is a cantata that Bach wrote in his time in Weimar. If you look at some of the research done on this cantata, you'll see that for a while scholars thought it was a fragment. It's only got three movements. It doesn't have any choruses. It's written entirely for one solo singer. It's a little bit unclear what type of singer this is. It's scored for an alto voice, but it's a little low for a female alto. It's got some low Fs in it. It looks really hard and low and hard to project um, just by first glance for the female alto voice type, which leads us to assume that maybe it was written for a countertenor, male countertenor, male falsetto something like that. And what we have here in our Netherlands Box Society recording is the male countertenor, Martin Engelches. In a companion video to this masterful performance of this cantata, you'll hear him talk about how difficult the range is of his voice singing this. It goes a little, it's in a little bit of an awkward place in the voice, and it goes over what we would call register breaks in the voice and forces him to sing across an area of the vocal range which is hard to move up and down through. But we do know now that the cantata is complete in three parts. We found more evidence to support that. We even know what Sunday it's for. And it was actually for a soloist. So this was not a cantata for a choir. This was a cantata that was led and narrated by this single soloist. Maybe male, we don't know. And its theme is a little scary. Stand firm against all sinning, or its poison, that is sinning's poison, will possess you. Don't be blinded by Satan. Bach, in trying to set this text, he was being a little experimental in his younger days. He decided that, well, what was in order was a shocking beginning. 
I remember reading some sort of internet forum about what's in classical music history, broadly speaking, classical with a lowercase c, you know, all those hundreds of years, not just talking about classical with a capital C, like Mozart and Haydn, but classical with a lowercase c. What's an example of a musical composition that begins with the most strange or striking first note or first chord? Hmm. Some great conversations, great suggestions were made. I learned about something from that conversation. I learned about les éléments, the elements, and the beginning, the first movement of it. It's called Chaos, Le Chaos, and it's by uh, the composer Jean Ferry Rebel. Looks like rebel in the English language. And anyway, this, this first note is just insane uh, of that piece. Figured bass shows, Alex, you gotta check this out. The figured bass shows like two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's just like all mm-hmm. the, it's just a cluster. It was a special effect and quite honestly, like a little bit over the top, but it's amazing. But the rest of the suite is just like nice French Baroque music. Hmm. But anyway, someone's comment was this cantata, this Bach cantata, Widerstehe doch der Sünde. Guard yourself or resist sin. I've had it in the back of my head for a while, and I know that there was a great recording, but then we received an email from a listener, Mons from Denmark, a Swedish person living in Denmark actually, who suggested this very moment. The first bars with the intricate opening chord, and I thought what a perfect excuse for us to talk about this, because Alex, quite honestly there are the moments of Bach that we talk about in this show, sometimes they're just personal favorites of obscure things, sometimes they are personal types of moments that we love. You you mentioned recently you like the ones where the bass falls out and then re-enters at a dramatic moment, the drop, so to speak. But this one is more along the lines of one of the most obvious moments. Like if, if you told a Bach scholar the conceit of our podcast, they would say, well, one moment is this one. You know, like this is just, this is a moment. It's one of the best ones. And it's the very, very first chord we hear at the beginning of this solo cantata this first movement, this first longer movement. It is scored for two violins and two violas. Alex, you pointed out that that's interesting. Of course, like those of you who know orchestra music out there, usually there aren't two viola parts, there's one part for the viola section. Here we have a violin one and two, viola one, viola two part. So there's four independent upper string parts and then a soloist, the alto soloist, and then the continuo, which is played by the bass instruments and the harpsichord and or organ. The first chord we hear is dissonant and strange. Alex, if you are predictable in choosing moments that have bass drops, I think this is by Although this isn't my moment, really, this is actually Mons's, but my episodes are predictable in this way because I pick the ones that start on the weird harmonies, I guess. We check out this first bass note. We expect this pleasing, stable harmony at the beginning. Instead, we get this. What has been prescribed here is for five notes to happen at the same time, which is weird. Most chords have three pitches in them total different kinds of pitches. This one has five. It is clearly a chord over a note. That bass note that stays put on the bottom we've said is called a pedal point. 
To start a musical composition on such a strange chord, there has to be a reason. And for Bach, the reason here is the text, stand firm against all sinning. It's not the standing firm, maybe the bottom note is the standing firm. The sinning and the poison to resist is everything that happens above. But if you listen to the, the other companion video, where the director, Lars Ulrich Mortensen, is interviewed, it's another great video, he'll tell you that that might be the poison, but all of that amazing string writing that happens in those four parts above as the music progresses and steps up and up and up, higher and higher and higher, it's so beautiful and tantalizing. And maybe that's the actual temptation because it's so beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, because you you know, of course the music is not the music is not ugly. That's the thing, is that in Bach's Baroque style of his day, he could not actually write hundred percent dissonant music. Everything had to come to some beautiful harmony at some point. So it's a weird line he walks, but Mortensen argues that it's a duality. It's both. It's this strange poison of sin that we must avoid, which is this weird chord at the beginning. And, and the farther we go, the stranger it gets until the voice enters. But it's also the alluring beauty of these chords just pulsating and moving strangely and almost distractingly. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we can't know for sure if that's what Bach really thought, but the weird sequential nature of it going up and up the harmonic sequences going up and then some very striking harmonies throughout it just it just yeah. that's what it makes a lot of sense it's it's tense it's like it's like a rising fear almost a panic hmm. you know like panic attack there's this there's this heartbeat like boom 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 and it's like even though the heartbeat stays stays consistent and doesn't get faster because a sort of a cello rondo doesn't really fit the idiom of this style of music like you said christian he he's walking this line he's it, the music's still going to sound a certain way because it's baroque music i don't think it would make sense to have an accelerando here at the beginning of a movement like this but mm. it still portrays that like sense of rising panic because of the notes rising and layering like they do the first line is stand firm against or resist so maybe alex it's like that's why that bass note stays and there is a bit of panic building in the upper parts. Uh, maybe that's someone's anxiety, or maybe that is the temptations. You know, you could kind of read this a, a few different ways, but it it certainly it certainly works either way. Yeah, and we've talked before a little bit, especially when we were talking about the Saint Matthew Passion, about how I believe that Bach's instrumental stuff, especially the stuff in the instrumental introduction for a lot of these solo arias, is the musical depiction of the emotion that the singer is singing about that they can't quite put fully into words or even fully into their own melody. It's really all there in the instrument. We talked about this in the uh, Erbarmerdich, right? Like the famous aria from the St. Matthew Passion. Mm -hmm. 
there's the singer who is Peter in the story of the Passion, contrite after having betrayed Jesus three times. And the the singer is expressing the emotion, sure, but the violin solo with its complexity is almost able to do that more than what the singer can even do. Hmm. So I think that's what's happening here with the instrumental introduction. Like that battle is happening internally. That's something that's hard to express, at least in this idiom. Again, later composers, especially Romantic era, could do a lot more bombast with the voice. But then again, they could do that with the orchestra also. But anyway, my point is that the violins and violas here, along with the throbbing bass continuo thing, is just, it is the emotion of the singer, of the text. That's very profound that the instruments can, because they don't have words, they can express sort of more or a more abstract expression according to this musical style. Of course, it doesn't work if you don't follow this musical style or understand it. And composers in later eras, especially more modern or contemporary eras, would start admitting that everything is completely based on context and that nothing expresses anything objectively. But that's a bit of a postmodern subjective position of course, everything it only works if you know this if if you know the stuff, but but we do because we have everyone has heard at least in the background of their life they've been exposed to some sort of Western classical music, right? And it permeates everything, even in the Western society. That is even like film score and everything like that. I mean, yeah, for better or for worse, even you might sure. even, you could even argue, yeah. But with with Bach, it's it's just so clear that, like you said, Alex, the instruments take the burden of expression. It's almost like when the vocalist or chorus does finally come in after eight or 10 or 12 bars, it's almost like a a punch to the gut because they're actually saying the thing in actual words that you you suspected must be the case as as it goes or they clarify it with words or but it's just it's just so it's so different than just singing about a thing with emotion oh man that's so true because it like i'm thinking of the ausliebe from the saint matthew passion like i imagine that imagine that aria as though it just started with the soprano soloist singing coming in with that beautiful melody and it it would be still amazing because it's it's so beautiful but the fact that we had that instrumental introduction with the flute and the sort of plaintive, but yet kind of strident little staccato oboes, that is painting that entire picture. And then when the soprano comes in and sings the words, which is for love, my savior has died, then it's like, it's you've already, you, you go, like you just said, Christian, you go like, oh, they're saying it. They're saying what I'm feeling. Right, it's not like a symphony where it, the expression is the interpretation of it is kind of up to you as it goes. It's like after a certain point, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, we kind of have talked a little bit about how Bach is more of an objective composer than a subjective one in a way. This all goes back to my statement I made a few episodes back about all Bach arias are duets, right? Because the vocalist has their part but the instrumentalist conveys the emotion they also get the first and last say 
And here we have a section of two violas and two violins. So it's not really a duet, really. Well, they can, yeah, they count as one. Yeah, they're, they're the section. That's the obligato part. That's what's portraying the inner turmoil. So even though we have already explored the technical pitches involved in that first moment, I can't help it but to mention my other two favorite micro moments. One of them occurs on the third beat of the eighth measure. just this really nice harmony that's a little unexpected. It sounds like it's trying to resolve, but on a strong beat, it is dissonant, a little bit like the first note of the piece. Again, the continuo part suggests, the bass part suggests that Bach possibly thought of it as the, I'll say, the more interesting version of the two options that he had. Because if it was resolved, it would simply sound like this F minor triad here. But... It doesn't really go to that, except for for the tiniest moment. I think we're just going to have to assume that it is the more interesting chord there. This uh, A-flat major 7th chord. 7th chords are common in, in this style of music, but they're almost always a different type. We call dominant 7th chords. This is, this is much more unusual as a vertical harmony to just exist. So it's really hard to say if Bach thought of it that way, but it's really much more modern if he did, I guess. Yeah, and I can't help but noticing that it does it again two bars later. And this is a cool thing that Bach does a lot. I don't think we've ever really talked about this, where he comes to a cadence, and it's not a deceptive cadence because it does land on the tonic, but he still has like a couple bars to go and wraps up a second little cadence. So that first one wasn't wasn't the real one, you know, like he gives us another one. He does this a lot. And in this one, as you said, it's on the eighth measure. It falls into a cadence on measure nine which gives us a nice eight bar thing before the cadence. It's like, just feels right. And yet he can't help but, hmm, I got a little extra thing for you. And what he does there on measure nine is he has the violins hold the pedal point, which is what he had the bass doing before. Now he has the violins do it, although it's just a long note for them. With the violas are getting the little extra fluffy um, sort of 16th note faster stuff, the da 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 thing. Mm-hmm. But then in measure 10, a thing happens on beat three, just like you said it on measure eight. Again, it's really similar. The notes are a little lower now, but it's the same chord as actually on the end of three. So it's a little, mm. it, it just flies by faster, but it is still that A flat major seven chord is still happening. Yep, he extends cadences a lot like this. It's very pleasing and proportionally more interesting. Yeah, and we're going to see that next week too because my moment that I picked for next week is is a similar extra oh. cadence. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's always great. I, I just always love that when something is not 4 or 8 or 16. If it can just be 10, you know, or, or 5 or 7, it's just so much more unusual. It doesn't always work, 
but because it's not, it doesn't always feel as squared off, but it's just a much more interesting number. And uh, if you listen to to music that's popular, any pop music or anything, it's always four and eight groups, groups of measures and beats and stuff. It's always eight and 16. And it's just, it's just the, it is the default. And when things are not like that in Baroque music, especially, it's, it's really nice. So Alex, even though these first two moments we've spoken about today have been within the instrumental introduction, I'm arguing that the most striking moment in this movement of of this cantata occurs later in the B section. And I'm using the word B section because this is a aria that begins with its main section and it's longer. We're calling that A, the A section, let's call it. So right now I'm talking about the B section before the A section is repeated again because this aria is ABA, goes back to the beginning. So when we get to this next chunk of text, be not blinded by Satan for those who violate God's majesty shall be felled by a deadly curse. And when that text finishes on deadly curse in German, the German grammar is different, of course, so the last word is deadly is, basically, last couple of words, but the music winds down to a cadence and has a extremely uncommon type of deception. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about deceptive cadences before. Deceptive cadences are are allowed. They are part of harmony. You think you're going home and then you divert going home by instead going to a related place, but not quite right and a completely different mood and it can lead you elsewhere. But this isn't even that. This deception it's sort of like a deception on top of a deception because not even a deceptive cadence. The voice part appears to be correct, but the chord we wind up on is retrogressive. It's going backwards. Harmony is supposed to move forward in this kind of music. Everything from, you know, 1600 to 18, 1600 to 1880. Mm-hmm. Harmony moves forward and it lingers and pushes and pulls. And that's the power of it. But it finally gets home. And here, we're finally almost there, but we don't even get really deceived. We just get completely diverted. We go backwards one in the series of fifths that's supposed to make up the progression of chords that we go in. You see what I'm saying, Alex? It's like, it's actually incorrect. You, you, got you can't cursed. go, you can't go, yeah, you can't go <laughs> from, from the five chord back up to the two chords, the wrong direction to move. It's like, it's like going the wrong way on a one-way street. It's illegal. Yeah, except... Like you said, the voice part does like the right thing and lands on the t- the C in this case, but that C Bach because he throws the wrong chord, the uh, curse chord there, uh, the illegal chord there. The C just functions as the seventh in that chord, which is really, really kind of an awkward sound. But I do have to point out that again, according to the rules and the idiom. He does actually resolve that after like four more bars of the instrumental material, right? He does, does the, get he to does C the minor, cadence. yeah. It does get this there. time it works. And then that's so that's a, a failed one and then a completed one. And then the rest of the B section is just 
another set of that, another failed one. And then another completed one, this time in a different key, this time in the dominant key of the minor. So like, oh, this is such a good, this is such a good thing and it, and you need to be at a keyboard to really understand this if you're a musician anyway, but you know, we can't go into to a lot of music theory detail as much as we want to on this podcast sometimes, but here he gives us a failed one again another like cursed note here and this one again the voice part lands in the right spot this time it's a g but now the chord instead of being a g major chord or minor whatever it's actually a g7 and the bass is even on the seventh so it sounds very dissonant and he doesn't give us that real cadence of that until the end of the b section so like three more bars yes this one is also wrong so to speak although it's not it's in a completely different way. The first one was just actually a wrong direction in harmonic progression. Yeah. This one, it is okay harmonically, but it's just also maybe just as striking in terms of that bass note being unexpected. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, they're both wild and they're just so different. He just, it's a great thing about Bach is that they're two things that have to be, they're both like a theme word, like curse, for instance, except they're both, they're different, you know. Yes, but you're right, Christian. That first one is more illegal, <laughs> more incorrect, more and more striking to my ear too. But I always tell my groups this when we're singing something that's particularly dissonant or playing it or whatever, and it's you have to really mean it and not shy away from the dissonance because two reasons. One, because if you hit the dissonance kind of hard and then relax on the consonants, it's just musically satisfying. But the main reason is just because you don't want it to sound wrong, like a mistake, you know? Like in this Netherlands Box Society version, of course they always do such a good job and you just, you can hear the, the absolute just like confidence that they hit this like curse note, you know, that we're calling it <laughs> the illegal yeah. note. And it's absolutely clear that it's on purpose. And it's still jarring, but it like it doesn't give you that uncomfortable feeling as a listener of like, oh, is that wrong? Right, exactly. It's and and this director, Maestro Mortensen, is so good with this. You can you can tell. He knows exactly those moments to pull out of the group strongly. He he take he takes so much joy in it. You can tell that this this first movement is full of moments like that where he can really just like almost revel in the, the strangeness of harmony that, that happens during this music. And I'd like to explore this topic in a future episode more, but there's also something going on here that I'm very interested in as a composer, which is, it's something that the soloist Martin Engelches says in the companion video. There, there's a theory that, that with a piece like this, that Bach actually wrote it in this weird vocal range between two registers of his voice on purpose. In other words, the music is hard to perform on purpose. And it might seem kind of weird because as a composer, we should be, our effort should be toward writing something practical and idiomatic for the instruments that we write for and the voices. But there is something to be said about writing something purposefully difficult, not impossible, but hard so that the effort of performance comes through in the performance. Yeah, and that's almost more of an avant-garde kind of modern outlook on music. You know, there's some composers who do that, who make their music intentionally very intensely hard, 
because they want it to like the brain power to be used really they want the high cpu usage of the brain on that they want it to be like it to look hard you know mm-hmm. there's a great piece by tom johnson called failing mm. for bass the, sub- the subtitle is a very difficult piece for solo string bass <laughs> it's great <Yeah. laughs> and it it has like narration whether the string bass player is supposed to read while they're playing and it, the piece just keeps getting harder, and it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's, it does seem like a modern idea to, to put that into words. I mean, we can't we can't prove that Bach actually did that for this particular cantata on purpose, but it sure seems like it. Yeah. The effort of standing firm against sinning, or its poison will possess you. I mean, you don't want you don't want the musicians to have the easiest time with that. You want it to sound almost pained. And now, here is the instrumental introduction to the cantata Widerstehe doch der Sünde. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of Widerstehe doch der Sünde by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Thanks especially to listener Mons, who suggested this moment from this cantata. And Alex, what will we be looking at next week? Next week, we'll take a look at the first movement of the cantata BWV 99, Was Gott tut, das ist wohlgetan. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.